This morning's reading is taken from Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33. Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Well, once again, a very warm welcome. May I add my Welcome to that of Reggie. If this is your first time on Church at Home, Christchurch Midrand, a very, very warm welcome. My name is Martin. I'm the rector of Christchurch Midrand. It's uh, Thursday afternoon for me. We are pre-recording this sermon, but I know that you are watching probably Sunday morning, and uh, my prayer is that as we gather together around God's Word, that uh, God's Word and God's Spirit may speak to us and may draw us to himself. Before I pray, and uh, thanks to Ngezi for that Bible reading, and we're going to pick up a few verses from Ephesians 5, and then we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 2. So we'll be looking at two passages this morning. Let me just uh, update you with uh, one or two things. First of all, do remember next week, the 28th, is a very special Sunday for our church family. We are having a ordination for three of our young men, uh, Reggie and Raphael and Gareth, and they will be ordained formally and officially as ministers in our denomination. So that's going to be a special day for us. Our presiding bishop, Glenn Lyons, will be with us for that day, and he will be preaching and uh, teaching from God's Word, so don't miss that. It's always wonderful to have Glenn with us. Just so that you know, um, when we ordain uh, men into the ministry, it's not just for Christchurch Midrand, it's for our denomination. So they are ordained ministers throughout the denomination. And uh, our normal training, we, we regard the training of ministers as being so, so critical. And so normally what happens is that uh, they're involved in the life of a church, um, our church, and uh, then they come on as apprentices for one or two years. 
And then they go to Bible College, our Bible College, George Whitfield College down in Cape Town for three years. And then they serve a curacy uh, normally for two years. So it's a seven-year training. And uh, we believe it's absolutely critical that those who are going to teach God's word, uh, that they are properly trained and equipped. And it's not only their personal subjective sense of God's call upon their lives. Of course, that's important. It's also the family of God, the church of God, affirming that we agree with that calling of God upon their lives. So there's both a subjective sense of calling and there's an objective affirmation and confirmation from the local church. And of course, we are all delighted. Uh, Reggie and Raphael and Gareth have been part of our church family for many, many years. We love them. We, uh, we cherish them. And uh, we are all of one mind and one heart that uh, this is God's call upon their lives. And so do join us next Sunday for this very special occasion. The second thing I want to mention, we are dealing with marriage. We're having a break in our series in Mark's Gospel. We'll come back to that in March. Um, but just to mention two or three books, I mentioned them last week. Uh, uh, three books I think could be most helpful. The one is by Christopher Ash called Marriage. And uh, that's a great book and a great study uh, in biblical teaching on marriage. In a great book by Tim and Kathy Keller called The Meaning of Marriage. And then a third book, I didn't mention this last week, but a book by Paul Tripp called What Did You Expect? Uh, so there are three books if you want to do some more reading. And I think all of us who are married or those of us who want to be married uh, need to do reading, need to do some study so that we can help ourselves and help our marriages uh, so that we can, we can follow God's principles that he's given us. Now let me read one, reread one or two verses from Ephesians, the passage that Ngezi read to us, and then I'm going to pray. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you again that we can gather together, even at a distance for most of us, that we are united in Christ, we are united in sitting under the authority of his word, and we are united by the conviction, the teaching of his spirit. And so we do pray for the spirit, the spirit of truth, the spirit of God, that he may convict us, and he may teach us, and he may draw us to yourself as we read your word, and we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. I'm tired 
of listening to sentimental talks on marriage. That may be in churches, at weddings, in songs, in movies. Marriage is many things, but it is not sentimental. It's both glorious and hard. It is a great joy, but there's also great blood, sweat, and tears. As Tim and Kathy Keller say in their book, The Meaning of Marriage, I quote, Next to our relationship with God, marriage is the most profound relationship there is. And that is why, like knowing God himself, coming to know and love your spouse is difficult and painful, yet rewarding and wondrous. End of quote. Now, last week when we started our short series on marriage, we looked at Genesis 1 and 2. We looked at three key principles, three key relationships that God has given us for marriage. Let me remind you of them. Number one, marriage is one man, one woman, united to each other. One definition of marriage that I often use is one man, one woman, one life to the exclusion of all others. Second principle we saw last week is that marriage is one man, one woman, united to each other under God. So God is the creator. God is the author of marriage. It was his idea. God is the original wedding planner. So if you discard the author, if you discard the creator, if you discard his manual, don't be surprised that your marriage is dysfunctional or that your marriage ends in tears. Third principle, marriage is one man, one woman, united to each other, under God, in the world. Remember that from last week. So the purpose of the marriage, of your marriage, is not you. The purpose of marriage is not marriage. No, the purpose of marriage under God is that together you serve God, and you serve God's people, and you serve God's world. So what does that mean? That means that God has brought you together, husband and wife, under God, so that you may, as a married couple, serve others. We are told to love God and to love our neighbor. That's not just true for us individually. That's true for us as married couples. We are here to serve God and to serve our neighbor. So uh, the purpose of your marriage under God is to extend God's kingdom in the world. That may be with your children, with your extended family, with your neighbors, with your colleagues. That may be here in the church family amongst God's people. You have a life group in your home. You lead a life group in your home. Perhaps you teach children here at the church. Perhaps you open your home for non-Christian colleagues and family so that they can see the gospel. So the purpose of marriage is to be with each other, united, one flesh, under God, in the world, influencing the world. Spreading God's kingdom in the world. So Paul tells us there, notice in verse uh, verse 31, Paul quotes from Genesis 24, which we'll go to in just a moment. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now notice verse 32. This, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what Paul is saying there is that when two Christians are married to each other, 
in some way, in some mysterious way, it is a witness of the gospel. It is to point people towards Christ. Just as Christ served the church, just as Christ died for the church, so a married couple serve each other. So a married couple die to their own selfish desires and serve each other. So in a mysterious way, Paul says, Christian marriages, Christian homes and families ought to point people to Christ and Christ's relationship with his church. We also saw last week that marriage, like all of creation, and we picked that up in Genesis 3, has been distorted, has been severely damaged by sin, by the fall. So when our four parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, when they rejected his authority, when they rejected his manual, his word, it distorted every area of life. Everything is is, is distorted. Everything is dysfunctional, including marriage. So the idea, so there's a realism in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. There's an important realism which says the idea that your, that your spouse ought to be your perfect soulmate, that you ought to be perfectly compatible, is nonsense. In fact, it's a lie. There is no such person. And you are no such person. There's no such thing this side of heaven. So a realistic understanding of marriage not only includes the principles of Genesis 1 and 2, it includes the realism of Genesis 3, the fall, the entrance of sin and brokenness into our world, into our marriages, into our families. Now, in one sense, our culture doesn't get Genesis 3. It stubbornly persists to this grand illusion You hear it in songs, you see it in movies, in rom-coms, that somewhere out there is my soulmate. And if I only met my soulmate, all my needs would be fulfilled. All my hurts would be healed. We'll kiss, we'll hold hands, and we'll live happily ever after. My dear friends, as I said last week, that makes your lover into God. And no human being can bear that weight. The illusion is that there's someone out there who is the right person. And the problem with my marriage is I didn't find the right person. No, my dear friends, that is not true. There is no right person. We are all flawed. We are all broken. We are all sinful. So it's the, it's the thinking, the illusion that there's this soulmate, this, this, this hundred percent compatible person that you need to find. And if you look hard enough, you'll find that person. Perhaps that's why Larry King married seven wives. Every time he thought, let me find my soulmate, and then discovered she wasn't his soulmate. What he didn't realize is that he's not the perfect soulmate. (laughs) That's where the problem lay. There is no perfect soulmate. There is no perfect compatibility. Such a person does not exist I remember talking uh, to to a young man, we talked about ordinations, a young man who was um, planning to go into the ministry and uh, he wasn't married, he was, he was looking around, he was uh, dating girls, 
and uh, we were talking and kind of joking, and uh, he was saying, you know, he can't find uh, the right girl, and so, so I said to him, I said, my brother, your problem is that you are looking for a girl who is who is the Apostle Paul and Miss World rolled into one. And no such girl exists. And if there was a girl who existed, St. the Apostle Paul and Miss World in one, I don't think she'll be looking at you. <laughs> or me. Actually, I'm the lucky one because uh, I got a... Um, no, we are all we are all flawed. We are all sinful by nature. And so this illusion that there's this perfect partner out there somewhere who I need to find, my dear friends, that does not uh, correlate to the teaching of the Bible. We are all flawed, deeply flawed. And only when you understand that can you start building a stable marriage. A couple of years ago, a couple came to see me in, in my office. And um, a married couple, they said to me that I was their last hope. Uh, no pressure. And um, they were planning to get divorced because they were incompatible. And so I asked them in what way were they incompatible, and it was the normal suspects. It was communication, it was sex, it was different interests, it was, they seemed to have drifted apart. And I said to them, I said, that, I, I said to them, of course you're incompatible. We're all incompatible. Not only does your marriage have one man and one woman, and whatever our culture says, you are very, very different the one of you is XX and the one of you is XY. Add to that mix that you are living in a broken, dysfunctional world. And the crown of it all is that you are both by nature sinful, selfish, and deeply flawed. What on earth do you expect? Of course you're, you're incompatible. All marriages are incompatible. Now let's have a look at some of the biblical principles on which to build a stable marriage. Not sure if they ever came back for counseling. As one author said, I quote, Any two people who enter into marriage are both spiritually broken by sin, which among other things means to be self-centered, curved in on yourself, end of quote. So Genesis 3 teaches us that neurotic, selfish, immature people do not suddenly become angels when they fall in love. Which is why, as we saw last week, the great secret of a good marriage, there's no perfect marriage, the great secret of a good marriage is Christ. Because Christ confronts you with your sin. Christ confronts you with who you really are, a broken, fallen person, deeply in need of grace and healing. Christ and the cross presents us with a model for marriage. So that's what Paul is saying in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Now, in verse 22, Paul says to wives, they are to submit to their husbands. We'll get to roles next week. But husbands, notice, must love their wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Well, he gave up all his rights and privileges. He was united with the Father and the Spirit in heaven. He gave up those rights. He gave up those privileges. He willingly went to the cross. He willingly paid the penalty for our sin. He willingly died for us to reconcile us to God. And Paul is saying the secret of marriage is Christ and the cross. There's the model, husbands. That's a tough one. Yo, yo, yo. Now, for some, for some of you this morning watching, you may think to yourself, you know, our marriage is so complicated. There's been so much water under the bridge. Martin, I don't know where to start. I just don't know where to start. And Paul says, verse 25, start here. Start here. Do for your spouse what God did for you in Jesus. That's where it starts. So it doesn't start by saying this is where he needs to change, this is what he needs to do, this is where she needs to change, this is what she needs to do. No, it starts in verse 25. He gave up his life to love the church. And there's the model. That's where we start. Now, Paul is not saying that it's a choice between sacrifice and fulfillment. So you think to yourself, Martin, are you saying, you know, back to bread and water, back to a bed of nails? No, Paul is saying mutual fulfillment comes from Mutual sacrifice. That's what he's saying. All right, let's go back to Genesis chapter 3, chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We'll come back next week as we look at the roles in marriage, roles of husbands and wives in marriage. So we'll come back to Ephesians 5 next week. But let's go to Genesis 2, and I want to pick up two principles. Two principles this morning. First is companionship, and the second is family. So we're going to pick up those two those two key principles in marriage. First of all, companionship. Look again in chapter 2, verse 18. We looked at this last week, but let's look at it once again. Chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, remember here, chapter 1 gives us the big picture of creation. Chapter 1, we have the multiple creative acts of God culminating, verse 26, in the creation of Adam and Eve, male and female. Genesis 2 picks up chapter 1, verse 26, and fleshes it out. Genesis 2 drills down and explains, gives us more detail 
of what happened in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And here in verse 18, we have the first negative statement in the Bible, the first negative statement from God. Up to now, Genesis 1, at every stage of creation, God says, it is good, it is good, it is good. Verse 31, it is very good. And then we get this clangor. Chapter 2, verse 18, it is not good. And it's a strong word. It just... So it doesn't just mean the absence of something, but it means a deficit, means a distinct poverty. So what is the reason for this negative statement, the first negative statement coming from God himself? God looks around his world, he looks around the created order, and he sees that something is missing. There's no woman. Now, you may remember from last week, chapter 2, verse 18, The dominant thrust of verse 18 is that God said it is not good for man to be alone as he exercises dominion in the world, as he subdues the world. No, he needs a partner. He needs a woman, an equal partner in having dominion over creation, over subduing the world. So both man and woman are to rule and manage God's world. Both are God's managers. The woman perfectly complements the man as a co-manager, as a co-regent, exercising dominion over the created order. But I think there's more to it in that verse. I think it does speak to companionship. It is not good to be alone. You pick up the same idea in chapter 2, verse 24. And they shall become one flesh. Now, of course, that's a physical and a sexual unity, but it is also a spiritual, emotional unity, which brings us back to companionship. So verse 18 affirms one of the key principles of marriage is companionship. So none of the animals of God's creation were fit to be a companion of Adam. So that tells us a dog is not a man's best friend, nor are diamonds a girl's best friend. Take note, ladies. No, a man needs a woman. A woman needs a man. We all have this built-in desire for relationship, for companionship, for intimacy, and God has created marriage as the primary, not the only, but the primary institution by which those needs are met. So let me just say, there are some listening here this morning who, who have never been married. Or some of you were married, but now you are single. The Bible is not saying you are less loved, you are less valued, uh, because you are not married. No, marriage is not the only place where our longing for relationship is met. The Bible has a rich history. Many of us in this church have a rich history of deep, deep, meaningful friendships, which in many ways meet that need for companionship, for relationships. Friendships are so important. And just because you are single, you are no less valued, you are no less important, you are no less made in the image of God because you are not married. Jesus and Paul were never married. They never had sex. But they were whole people. They were whole human beings made in the image of God. But that doesn't negate the general principle that God has given us for the human race, that marriage 
is for one man and one woman so that we may not be alone. Now, it's quite striking here that the first human relationship was not a parent-child relationship. It was not a brother-brother relationship or sister-sister relationship. No, it was a husband-wife relationship, which means your first relational obligation, if you are married, is not to your siblings, is not to your friends and colleagues and buddies, is not to your parents, is not to your children. Your first relational obligation is to your spouse. I have known marriages break up because the wife, the mother in particular, has given priority to the children and not the husband. Now, I'm not talking here about the general needs of children. We all understand that. But the husband, over time, it becomes patently obvious to him that his wife's first priority, her first loyalty, her first affections go to the children and not to him. He always comes off second best. That's not the pattern the Bible has given us. The first relationship in the Bible, the first human relationship in the Bible is a husband-wife relationship. So where a husband feels that he's coming off second best, it certainly isn't right, but it's no surprise when he starts looking for other companionship. So ladies, I'll get to the men, but ladies, does your husband know that he comes first. Does he know that? Does he know that you love him and respect him? I know he's not perfect. But does he know that you believe in him? Have you told him that you're proud of him? Your husband probably hasn't told you. Husbands don't. He hasn't told you how important that is to him. For him to know from you, his wife, not from others, his wife, that you respect him, that you believe in him, that you're proud of him. Not because he's perfect, he's not. Not at all. But you've affirmed your loyalty, your love for him. You have no idea how important that is for your husband to hear that from you. The very best thing a mother can do for her children is love their father. The very best thing a father can do for his children is love their mother. Now let me get to the men. Not long ago I read a frightening statistic from the Department of Home Affairs. I hope it's wrong, but I don't think it is. The Department of Home Affairs here in South Africa stated that from their stats, over 70% of births registered in South Africa, I'm not sure of the actual year, but it's only a few years ago, over 70% of births registered in South Africa, it is stated on the birth certificate that the father is unknown. So either the mother wants nothing to do with the father, or the father wants nothing to do with his biological child, or with the mother of his biological child. And my guess, it's more of the latter than the former. I think the greatest problem in our country, my dear friends, is not politics or economics, it's not crime or corruption. Our greatest problem in this country, and there are all kinds of reasons, is absentee fathers. 
There's vast evidence that children brought up in fatherless homes are significantly more prone to abuse, to emotional disorders, psychological disorders, learning disabilities, alcohol, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, unemployment, unmarried pregnancies. Some years back, Focus on the Family did a survey of all the men on death row in the USA. This is a number of years ago. There were hundreds of men on death row in the USA. They did a survey of those men and discovered that 95% of those men had absentee fathers or abusive fathers or dysfunctional fathers. We really do need to pray for our country, for families, for marriages, and for fathers to step up. However, let me get closer to home. Gentlemen, let's be honest. Most of us are not very good in this area of communication or companionship or emotions. Someone uh, sent me a, a WhatsApp uh, joke. It had a picture of this, this uh, well-built guy, kind of a cowboy. And uh, the caption says, Who says men don't have feelings? I feel like a bride. Um, <laughs> uh, sadly, my dear brothers, too often that's true of you and me. We're not very good at this. I'm not very good at this. James Dobson wrote a brilliant book. It's about 40 years old, but it is brilliant and nothing has changed. It's called, and this is a good place to start, by the way. James Dobson wrote a book. It's called, What Wives Wish Their Husbands Knew About Women. I mean, that's a great title. What Wives Wish Their Husbands Knew About Women. Get the book and read it. Perhaps I should reread it. In that book, he quotes from a letter sent to him by a wife and a mother. Let me read it to you. It's quite long, but uh, if you're a husband or father, it'll cut you to the heart. I quote. She writes in this letter. She says... The kids are in bed. There's nothing, nothing on TV tonight. I ask my husband if he minds if I turn the TV off. He grunts. As I walk to the set, my mind is racing. Maybe, just maybe, tonight we'll talk. I mean, have a, con- have a conversation that consists of more than my usual question with his mumbled one-word answer, or more accurately, no answer at all. Silence. I live in a world with continuous noise, but between him and myself, silence. Please, oh God, let him open up. I initiate once again for the thousandth time. My heart pounds. Oh, how can I word it this time? What can I say that will open the door to just talk? I don't mean... I don't have to have a deep, meaningful conversation. Just something. As I open my mouth, he gets up and goes to the bedroom. The door closes behind him. The light showing under the door gives way to darkness. So does my hope. I sit alone on the couch. My heart begins to ache. I'm tired of being alone. Hey, I'm married. I have been for years. Why do I sit alone? The sadness undergoes a change slowly. Then with increased fervor, I get mad. I am mad. I'm sick on, sick and tired of living with a sissy, a wimp, a coward. You know, he's afraid of me. 
hostile, you say. You better believe it. I'm sick and tired of living in a world of passive men. My two sons like sports. They're pretty good. They could be a lot better if, if their dad would take a, take, take a little of his precious time and play soccer with them. I'm sorry. Soccer once a year at the church picnic doesn't quite make the boys into great ball players. But dad's too busy. He's at work. He's at the health club. He's riding his motorbike. He's working on the car. He's playing golf. He's tired. He's watching a video. So who plays soccer with my boys? Me. My husband says you shouldn't be playing men's sports. So who's going to do it? He says he will, but he doesn't. Remember, he's too busy. Satisfying himself doing what he likes. So my poor sons have to be second rate in sports. They could have been good, really good. Yeah, I'm mad. My daughter's a teenager. She likes boys. They notice her. They pay attention to her. She responds, I know what's coming. I try to talk to her, but it's not me she wants. It's dad. Yes, dad, if he'd just hug her, notice her, talk to her just a little, she wouldn't need those boys so much. But no. So she turns elsewhere for attention and love, and there's nothing I can do. A mom isn't enough. Kids need a father, and not just a body, a passive, silent presence. And here's the killer. My husband's father did the same number on him. Didn't hug him, didn't take him to anything, let alone watch his soccer games. And he hates his father. Now my husband's doing the same thing. Will our sons also grow up to be passive? Will our sons also be cowards? End of quote. Yo, yo. Gentlemen. We've got to step up. Principle number one, companionship. Principle number two. Back to chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, when I mention the word family, I'm not talking about your children. I'm talking about the husband's family. I'm talking about the wife's family. I'm talking about the in-laws and the outlaws. So the key phrase here is, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. In the old King James, James Version, it said, leave and cleave. Leave his parents and cleave to his wife. There are three, I'm told there are three major causes for marital breakup. Sex, money, in-laws. I'm not sure what the order is, but we're going to talk about in-laws and outlaws. When you marry, you will well know this if you are married. When you marry, you're not just marrying a person, you're marrying a family. Now, at first you don't think so, but you do. That is true of all our cultures, but I think it's much more pronounced in our black culture that you marry an extended family. And they are great blessings, but they're also great challenges. Remember our definition of marriage, one man, one woman for one life to the exclusion of all others. Surprisingly here, the first exclusion is your parents. 
So in ancient cultures, and it's true of some cultures today, a woman would automatically leave her family to join her husband and his family. However, this verse, which is repeated by Paul, by Jesus, reinforces that both husband and wife are to leave their parents. So when you get married, you are leaving your biological family and you are starting a new family. You are starting a new social unit. That's what's happening when you say those vows. It is profound. What does that mean? It means your first loyalty is no longer to your parents, to your mom, to your dad, to your siblings, to your friends, your colleagues. No, your first loyalty now is to your spouse. Means a wife no longer looks to her parents for security or love or affirmation. No, she looks to her spouse. It means a husband no longer looks to his parents, his mom, his dad for, for support or advice. No, he looks to his wife. You are to leave emotionally. Your first loyalty is no longer to your parents, but to your spouse. If at all possible, you do need to leave geographically. It is not good for a married couple to be living with their parents. It can be very, very unhealthy. It can destroy the marriage. Far better to to live in one or two small rooms, struggling with each other together than living under the roof of your parents for the sake of your marriage, your first loyalty, your first commitment is no longer to your parents but to your spouse. Many, many years ago, we had a couple in our church. They've, uh, they were from America. They've gone back to America and uh, many years ago, the wife said to me, she said to me, you know, we traveled half, halfway around the world to settle, in, to settle in South Africa to get away from his family. If that is what was needed, good for them. Good for them. Your first loyalty is to your spouse, not to your biological family. You are to leave economically. You are to leave financially. Now, your parents may help you with one-off um, one events like a wedding or buying a house. But you are not to be dependent on your parents, if at all possible. I know these are tough times. I know these are COVID times. And I know sometimes one has no option. I do understand that, and God understands that. But if at all possible... Far better for the two of you to be struggling together financially than to be dependent on your parents. It does not mean that you do not love and honor and respect your parents. The Bible says we are to honor and respect our parents, our elders. It may mean one day that you have to take your parents in and look after them because of their old age, but it's only after you have discussed that as a couple and you have agreed as a couple that that is what you are going to do. I think most of us know the massive, massive problems that occur in marriages 
when one spouse never leaves home. It is quite possible to leave home geographically, but not leave home emotionally. The Bible says, for this reason, a husband will leave his parents and hold fast to his wife. Both husband and wife are to leave. You all know, you know in your extended family, marriages, families, where there are massive, massive problems. Because one of the spouses never left home. Where the wife is more concerned about the opinion of her mother or father or sister than the opinion of her husband. Where the husband is more concerned about the opinion of his father, his brother, his mother than his wife. You then have three in a marriage. My dear friends, it does not work. You cannot have three in a marriage. Someone has to go. And that someone must be the father-in-law or the mother-in-law. But then the man says, but surely you can't expect me to favor my wife above my mother? For goodness sake, she's my mother. And the Bible says, yes, the Bible, God does expect you to favor your wife above your mother or father. In my Western culture, I must end In my Western culture, my white Western culture, you have a lot of jokes about a man's mother-in-law. So that's a common joke that we have in our culture. What we do not joke about is the real problem. The real problem is the wife's mother-in-law. Too often, the husband's mother thinks that this girl is not good enough for her little darling angel boy. And so she interferes, and she criticizes. And sometimes she can make the life of that wife unbearable. If that is true of your marriage, you as the husband need to gently but firmly tell your mom and dad or sister or brother or whoever it is to back off. Start off by being gentle and firm. If they don't listen, it needs to be firmer. And there may come a point where you need to say to them, if you do not back off, we will need to significantly separate ourselves from you as a family. It's destroying my marriage. And my first loyalty is no longer to my biological family as much as I love and respect them, but it is now to my wife. It is now to my husband. My dear friends, you will know these are deep, deep things. And yet God has given us on the first page of the Bible, almost the first page of the Bible, the basic building blocks for building a stable marriage. You venture from them at your peril. He's given us these principles for our good in order that we may have stable, healthy marriages. Well, there we have two principles this, uh, this morning, companionship, family. Next week, 
we'll pick up roles in marriage. And not next week, two weeks' time, we'll pick up roles in marriage and one or two other principles. So let me pray. Father, we thank you that you care about us more than we can imagine. Thank you that you care about our marriages and our families and our children more than we can imagine. Father, will you convict us of sin? There's sin amongst some who are listening here, Lord, be it a husband, be it a wife, where we've deviated from your word, from your principles, from your template. And Father, we pray that you will convict us and show us where we fall short. And then will you help us by your Spirit to be more godly, other-person-centered husbands and wives. Father, we can't do this on our own. We are so aware of that. We are too selfish for that. So will you, through your word and by your spirit, will you change our heads, our hearts, and then change our behavior? And Lord, we pray for our church. We pray that you will guard the marriages in our church. Lord, there are so many attacks by the devil and by the culture and by the world and by our own hearts. We pray that you will protect our marriages and our homes and our families from the evil one, that you will not give a foothold to the devil who loves to break down the work of God. Will you help us, Lord? We need your help so much, and we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, it's been so good to have you with us here this morning, and uh, do be with us next week for the ordination service, and then the week after that we'll conclude our study in God's principles for marriage. God bless you and have a good week.